<laughs> You're listening to A Little Too Quiet. It is the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. It's okay, Roddy. You can laugh. We have just wrapped up another episode. My name is Jeff Milo, and as you can tell, Roddy's here. Hi. And Mary Graham is here again. Hello. And we had a... Uh, uh, I'm speechless. We just... Uh, we had a lot of feelings to share about villains. And I think we... I lost count of how many villains we, we covered. Probably 30. How many different mediums. How many different decades. Uh, we even have some some opera in here. Uh, villains are complex. I think that goes without saying, um, which you're going to hear a lot about in this episode. So I'm just going to let us get started. What is the deal with villains? Now, I love them. Exactly. Um, yeah. What good, bad? Is it? Is it? Is it really so night and day? Is it such an easy spectrum here? You know, that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, obviously, you guys have a lot of feelings, and I'll just say that you know, the better the villain, the better the story. Uh, it makes. It can tend to make a hero who might not be interesting more interesting because of the contrast. Um, that's that's all I have to share. I'll have more to share. But if you both had any any places you'd like to begin, the, the floor is yours. <laughs> so actually, one thing that I was thinking about as I was preparing my notes for this is, do we want to, can we differentiate between villains and antagonists? Uh, Absolutely. This is, this is something I find very interesting because I was thinking about like all of my sort of favorite novels, many of which have villains that I feel like I have big feelings about. And one of them is Les Miserables. And I was thinking to myself, is Javert a villain? Or is he like, obviously to his own mind, absolutely not. Right. Uh, but from almost any angle of this very, very long book, you're sort of like, oh. Feels like he's doing villainy things, but is he is he being a villain or is he being an antagonist? Are those ex- exclusive? Like, how do you differentiate? No, there's definitely a difference, especially Javert. He's actually a great example because Javert's character history is incredibly complex, and he's this character who's literally had to build himself up to this point in this society in which he lives. There's also a lot of uh, questions about Javert's racial background Mm -hmm. and why he's such a stickler for things because it's a question of can he afford personally to sort of divert in the way that the characters around him are doing, which is what makes his story so tragic because he cannot divert and continue to exist in that world. And that is why his story ends the way it does. Mm -hmm. So yes, there is, that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, there is a difference between villain and antagonist. And I like them both. Because once again, you are only as good as your villain right? or your antagonist because they are kind of what drives the story. The villain is the action and the protagonist is the reaction more often than not. Um, because once again, they kind of spur the events. So you're looking for what you're antagonist and what your villain is doing and you know what i love them so much they're so wonderful i'm just gonna get to the emotional part (laughs) and that's why we're here today is because and roddy literally just said i love villains but i think that's a great point to start off on um antagonists versus villains before we actually started mary graham had brought up motive which i think is also a very important Mm -hmm. factor to consider um but i guess i think i would start broadly and simply with why roddy loves villains and then we'll open the floor to mary graham okay so my villain origin story which both (laughs) jeff and mary graham have heard at this point i was but a wee child and there is this movie that was coming out around my birthday called the Phantom Menace. And as a wee child, I remember watching the preview for this movie and seeing this character who, you know, wearing all black, very mysterious, takes off his hood, face is red and black, horns atop his head, 
and I saw him and I was just like, mom, that's me. And she was just like, what? <laughs> and I was just like, that's what I want to do for my birthday. Natural Also, impulse. can you dress me like him and paint my face to look like him and put my hair in little buns atop my head to look like him? And she was like, we will go see this for your birthday, but no to everything else. And I was just like, oh, yes, this is my first run in with heartbreak. <laughs> and that's fine. And then the character who you might have guessed is called Darth Maul. Oh, yeah. Fantastic name. Best Darth name, Absolutely. by the way. He has a red saber and he double wields it. And it's just mm -hmm. little me was sitting there in awe. Like, sure, I cared about the other characters. My parents had introduced me to Star Wars before this point in my life. And I was just like, yes, I get it. But then I really got it sure. when I saw him. And I was just like, oh, this is going to be a thing for me for the rest of my life. And you know what? It's true. Sure, sure. <laughs> I, this leads me to, to to explore something visceral that a good villain can trigger inside of us. Uh, I hope this is a safe place for me to say this. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll provide two examples. Okay. Someone else, and then I'll put myself on the floor. Uh, a friend of mine, when we went to see the, and the, this isn't a book, but we're already in Phantom Menace territory, but this was 2008's The Dark Knight. And he expressed, uh, he tried to articulate how he was um, excited, I guess, mm -hmm. over how, you know, dynamic the Joker character is and the film is getting darker and darker and darker. And he's like, uh, I'm not minding this. I want it to get darker. Mm -hmm. And Darth Maul is such a badass that I'm watching it. And I'm like, boy, howdy. I don't care if he wipes the floor with both of these Jedi. I'm almost, <laughs> oh, dear Lord, am I rooting for him? So there's, there's something that happens about the cool villain. <laughs> Even though they, they could be monsters. No, I... Or are I, they monsters? I was a little heartbroken yeah. when he died in that movie, or so we thought. Mm -hmm. Not going to get further into that because there's a lot of lore there. Sure. But I was sad. I was just like, <laughs> I don't care about anyone else. Maybe mm -hmm. Samuel L. Jackson. But I was like, I don't care about anyone else sure. in this movie. <laughs> sure. But... I would say that I was half disappointed. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> You know that that was, was <laughs> Ray Graham, what are your thoughts? I feel like I am something of a villain neophyte. Yeah. Even though looking at my notes, I, I like in making lists of like villains I find interesting, there is a lot of stuff there like from my childhood, like sure. the White Witch sure. from mm -hmm. the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, both oh, in the book yeah. and like Tilda Swinton is so good in the film adaptation. Sure. And what I actually particularly love about that is that she... There is something monstrous about her and in a very sort of specific feminine way. Sure. And Swinton even talked in interviews about like the way that she decided to play the witch's interactions with Edmund. And she's like, you know, I have children of my own and I know it's important as their parent to be very consistent with them. And Absolutely. so I was very inconsistent mm -hmm. in that she's very, she blows very hot and cold, mm -hmm. which is very confusing to this small child. And that's sort of what she based some of that villainy in. And I was like, oh, that's so fascinating. Um, but actually, uh, the first time I feel like I sort of, I, like I was interested in them narratively and like we talk about Javert and things like that, or like Disney villains. I'm very interested in like the historical queer coding of Disney villains. Mm -hmm. yes. Um, and I've never been like a super hardcore Disney person, but like when someone pointed out to me that of course, like Ursula's design is based on Divine, who's a very mm -hmm. famous drag right. queen and like Scar is like quite obviously the disaffected gay uncle. Sure. I was like, oh. That makes sense. And that's fascinating, actually. Mm -hmm. But the moment that made me sit up and go, okay, I get it, was last April when Shadow and Bone <laughs> dropped on Netflix. Uh -huh. And here's the thing. the I, I had been aware of, like, Lee Bardugo's whole Grishaverse because when I was a camp counselor, that was, like, the year that Six of Crows came out. 
And my kids were obsessed with it. So I would just, it is such a good book. Um, And I I haven't read the original Grisha trilogy, but I have read Six of Crows, which I highly recommend. Um, And so I thought, well, like, my kids loved this series, like, when I was a camp counselor. So I'll just, it's like Saturday, I have nothing to do. I'll sit down and watch it. And like, Ben Barnes says, The Darkling happens. Listen. And I was like, huh. Interesting. Keep keep t- keep talking and i swear it's not just because ben barnes who is another connection to the narnia films um but, <laughs> but there's i mean there's uh a flashback scene maybe like six episodes in where you sort of like understand like what his whole deal is and he spends the first half of the season just like lying to absolutely everyone including the heroine in this kind of really it like messes with your head mm-hmm. and you, you get the flashback. You find out why he's doing all of these things. And I was like, Oh, cool motive. Still murder. <laughs> like still, that's a lot of murder. That's a, that's a lot of murder. And I wouldn't even say it was like justifiable murder, but I get it. I get it. And watching the internet sort of explode, sort of following this, I must now read a tweet from, my favorite romance novelist, Kat Sebastian, who I have mentioned on the pod before. Fantastic. Uh, in, in replying to, you know, all of these people who are like, why is everyone on the internet, like, really into this, like, manipulative jerk who's t- terrible and, like, that's a lot of murder, you know? And Kat Sebastian is like, he rides a horse and wears a cape and kisses like it's his one job. It's truly not a mystery. <laughs> and-, and somebody else replies, uh, this is uh, Two Snakes and a Whale. It's a great handle even though I, I don't know your real name he's extremely attractive and his cape goes swoosh what else does a body need <laughs> and that's like the two the the double-bladed light, lightsaber sure. right like the cape goes swoosh sure yes what's not clicking exactly and that's another thing about villains um and i'm going to differentiate villains from ta- antagonists mm-hmm. in this villains typically always have a sort of seductive quality about mm-hmm. them that kind of just like pulls you in mm-hmm. and you're just like and it's not also inherently sexual it's also for example let's talk about scarge just like he's just an intriguing character be prepared be prepared is a fantastic song so seductive in terms of like being pulled into this villain's narrative this villain's story their point of view and you're just like at least in this moment you have me i think that that is a really good thing that maybe differentiates antagonists from villains because like i think about uh javert for example and i can always see where where he's coming from from his specific view but i'm never there with him right like you spend the whole novel going oh buddy you're so focused on being the bestest cop and you are the bestest cop and that's the problem (laughs) like (laughs) but that's not a problem for him whereas you know you think about like scar or ursula yeah or not so much the White Witch, but the Darkling for sure. And you're like, okay, 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 you are making some points. Again, it's a lot of murder, but you're making some points. I mean, even the White Witch, because she had him ready to sell out his siblings for some Turkish delights, which I was actually kind of not happy when I tried them as I got older. Because no one is. I was just like, I, I would sell my siblings for a corn chip, but I would not <laughs> sell them for this because this is not that good. Uh, so I, I want better for Edmund. Actually, never had locum before, but a common reaction that I have is like someone who grew up next to Dearborn, and I feel like I should go try it. Is like, has anyone had like Dearborn Turkish delight? Oh, like, that's true. Like you yeah. know, like locum is a is a sweet that a lot of people across the world love. That's fair. So it's probably the source. Right. Mm-hmm. She probably had the really really good one. So I will. <laughs> I will retract that statement for further investigation. <laughs> there's there's other but, stuff at, there's other stuff at play though because we we talked about how she is motherly toward him exactly. and to a degree and he's a middle child yes. so he's loving he's, the attention. He's a middle child in the middle of a traumatic situation where he's not with his parents. Right. Yeah. It's right. it's they're not in the picture. They've been evacuated from London. The movie right. implies that his dad's at war mm-hmm. and his mom is still in London. Right. So, yeah. you know, and then I, I don't have siblings, but when you get the whole, like, you feel like your siblings are ganging up on you. Right. So Roddy can speak Roddy to this better than I can. I have too many siblings. Um, but there's this other part of this that I've touched on outside of this podcast, obviously, because we're only starting to record that, which is this newer trend of, like, needing to justify a villain. Hmm. 
or an antagonist and I'm not. let them be whack. Listen, this is a thing about this that drives me crazy because sometimes we need to just let our villains be villains. It's really fascinating, yes, to get their perspective on things, but... I feel like this trend of, oh, we need to mm. make them not as evil or we need to give extra reason. Like, no, maybe sometimes she just wants to get the puppies to make them into I a coat. Had a feeling yeah. we were in the Cruella yes, territory. Yes, yes. And yes. <laughs> that needs to just just let that sit. Because when you try to do all these fancy, like, you make all these efforts to try to retell the story. And mm-hmm. it's just not good it's not as compelling because not only are you devaluing your villain you are thereby devaluing your protagonists mm-hmm. and your heroes mm-hmm. and it's like no like <laughs> i'm sauron right okay so let's him out there <laughs> the Folks. origin story of this podcast episode <laughs> the origin of the story uh for this podcast was that uh, in September there's going to be a new Lord of the Rings show, which we should technically call Rings of Power because it is not the original trilogy with the Fellowship. Just, I'm sorry, quick clarifying. Is it based on the Silmarillion? Are they making stuff up out of thin air? Do we know I what's happening? I think they're uh, a, la, <laughs> a la carte. They'll be taking some things from Silmarillion and, and making probably some making up. some new things up. They've made some things I'm up. I'm sorry, Tallers. I hope that you're resting easy, but I'm sorry I'm they're doing this to yourself. So right I was excited about it. <laughs> I came into work and said, Roddy, have you heard the news? And she said, yes. And I said, and I said something along the lines of, boy, it'll be really exciting to see uh, Gladriel and Elrond. And, and she said, no, baby Sauron. And so after she said baby Sauron, we made a podcast. <laughs> so Sauron. Because we know what I'm here for. Right, exactly. <laughs> And this is the this is the thing that I love about Sauron. Sauron is not that active in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He has right. minions who do most of the work right. for him. Because right. like, so I've only read the first book in the trilogy, and I've seen the first movie a couple times, and like the second movie, but it was at a sleepover, and it was late, and I probably fell asleep. And it's mm-hmm. like my memory is that he's mostly you know, up on some mountain, going ah, and sending his ghouls after hobbits, right? Well, it's, I mean, it's more complex. He's more of a of a specter. Okay. Yes. He's more of a specter. He's he's a glowing eye at the top of a tower. Uh, yes. And yet here I am, just enamored because the things that Sauron puts into place, the things that he does, that just sends us on this roiling adventure, and he doesn't even have a finger to lift throughout the story. Right. Literally. Literally. Because he's an eye. Because he's an eye. <laughs> and yet, and yet, I love him. <laughs> I am I am so excited. Like, I'm I have my apprehensions about the rings of power, which we can talk about outside of this. Has a lot to do with beards. Not gonna get into that right now. Oh but that's another podcast. That yeah. So yeah, but the idea that we will get to see Sauron in his more humanoid form doing bad things that he's not supposed to do, just I'm so excited <laughs> because I I want this for me personally. <laughs> like I and just, you deserve it, Roddy. I do. I've worked so hard <laughs> trying to spread the word of Sauron and <laughs> <laughs> Are you excited about that rebel factor? The the phrase you said, doing things he's not supposed to. Is there something in that that yeah. we could, not that we're psychoanalyzing you, but. <laughs> <laughs> because I, in my actual life, am a stickler for the rules and sure. have barely gotten in trouble sure. ever. Right. I mean, yeah, it's kind of fun to look at characters and be like, oh, look at them doing all these things I would never do. They're because causing I have... problems on right. purpose. Right. Like, that's so rude. I would never. But also, this is so much fun to watch this happen. Sure. I love it. It's it's so good. I feel like every time I watch or I read something, I will find the antagonist or the villain and I will just like sort of glom myself onto them. And I'm just like, this is my person for the entirety of whatever it is I'm reading. There's this series that I've probably mentioned before because I love N.K. Jemisin, the Broken Earth trilogy. There's a character named Shafa. It's kind of 
He's a complicated character. I personally think he's a villain and I love him for it. He's a terrible person. There are others who are like, he has redemptive qualities and I'm just like, I'm not sure. But I don't necessarily want him to have redemptive qualities. I want him to be a villain mm-hmm. because that is the characterization of him that I like the most. Mm-hmm. And once again, I just need us to let our villains be villains. We need to let our <laughs> so, villains be villains. Yes. And I actually think that's a good lead into. I have a question about if one of the. Well, I suppose it's. For me, it's more of a statement. One of the things that I do find satisfying about like a good well-written villain is how much fun it is to like throw popcorn at the screen like whenever they cut like it's the hating part so i i was thinking about you know in antagonist versus villain like do jane austen novels have a villain and i think i would argue that the only one that does is pride and prejudice and it's george wickham and it has to do sort of with he gets to just be a villain. You never find out why he's terrible. Because mm-hmm. his father was a good man. He was raised with Darcy, who turned out, like, socially awkward to six ways to Sunday, but, like, sure. is, like, a moral human. And and Wickham is basically just, like, no. And he also gets away with it. And he, he wh- can you call a life with Lydia getting away with it? This is the thing. I guess it's a that's short a, end of the Okay, for so her. I'm just going to go to a I'm gonna veer off somewhere mm-hmm. to operas I know you guys have <gasps> yes. never we're here for it no, I've so never excited. talked to you guys about operas but that's a thing for me I, I know. know this about you yeah I know <laughs> surprise there's a lot of things that I'm passionate about and I'm gonna go to one of the most famous ones Don Giovanni I was gonna yes, say Don because, Giovanni you know we go through this whole opera he finally gets defeated and then what most composers like to do and I actually have a problem with this <laughs> I wrote a paper about this in college but not important not the topic is that most composers the last thing you see before the curtains drop and all the other characters are singing about how they've overcome this seductive villain mm-hmm. is Don Giovanni in hell mm-hmm. surrounded by naked women mm-hmm. I'm like did he lose did he really lose yeah, an excellent point <laughs> and so yes I know that we're supposed to be like oh yes having to live with Lydia and her annoyingness is punishment enough but considering the power dynamics of oh, yeah. husbands and wives it's a much worse deal for Lydia It's yeah she has it worse like he basically was just like Oh, we don't, no one wants to see me anymore. I've run off with this girl to save their reputations. They're going to give me money and give me a position far, far away so they don't have to see me. Yeah. Have I lost? I can just ignore my wife for the rest of her life. It's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, there's no, there's no punishment here. That's and, interesting. And one of the most satisfying, I mean, I, I, yes, I think you're right. And, and still one of the most satisfying moments in Pride and Prejudice for me is after Lizzie has his number but he doesn't know that she knows Mm -hmm. and so she spends like she plays like some mind games with him and as a as a spectator who's watched this guy like turn out to be evil Mm -hmm. I'm like ooh this is fun to watch and like I'll rewatch the 95 miniseries he'll come on screen for the first time and he's still (laughs) this very sort of charming officer and I'm throwing my popcorn at the screen right boo also to take throwing popcorn to another level let's talk about one of my all-time favorite villains Iago and how actors have been shot but survived playing (laughs) him Um, that's (laughs) so I once again gonna take a brief moment into college Mary Graham knows this I think I've mentioned this to you My senior thesis in college was about Iago Mm -hmm. because villains are my brand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I took that to an academic level. But that is a villain. (laughs) Excuse me. Sorry. That's okay. (laughs) Folks can know that we're we're a library podcast (laughs) and that a librarian literally just walked into the room. I love it. We're keeping it. And then he danced Um, away. We're keeping it. So... um, Almost lost my train of thought. Iago. But I just kind of spent this wonderful time with my thesis just exploring his character and like the type of villainy and what's going on with him. And he is one of my favorite villains because while he does have a downfall at the end of the story, he gets the opportunity, depending on how you sort of read it, 
to talk to everyone, not just the other characters, yeah. but the audience members. That's kind of why that one actor ended up getting shot playing him because someone in the audience at this show, I like put in a footnote of my paper, got so angry and so frustrated that they were just like, I need to take this man down because oh. he's so horrible. And that speaks to one of the most perfect kinds of villains to me. I love that he gets to play with you, Othello, everyone involved. Absolutely. He's and, so satisfying. Uh, I love he's him. Just, he's just, it's so, I remember studying Othello in high school and being like, this guy is the worst and I can't look away. Yeah. yeah. He's the best character in a play full of really interesting characters. And you know what? You never know what his reasoning is. He gives he you a reason changing his story. every single time he tells you as the audience why he's doing this. Right. Oh, he I got changes over it. for a promotion. Oh, yeah. I think he slept with Yes. Someone. And exactly. if you're trying to solve the equation, all you keep thinking is, well, he just must deep down hate Othello. Uh, you can't, it Not can't just be. just him. He has contempt for every human being and it's just like he is a man who just wants to watch the world burn and i will hand him a match just to see the story (laughs) progress this is so interesting in contrast to the villain of my favorite shakespeare play much ado about nothing Mm -hmm. and dear listener i hope that you're not sitting at home going but don john he's so boring what a flat villain keanu wasn't even that good in the movie which i would dispute but the whole the reason that none of that matters is because the villain of Much Ado About Nothing is not Don John. The villain of Much Ado About Nothing Tell him. is Claudio. There we go. Arguably, <laughs> from a broader scale, you could make the argument that the villain of Much Ado About Nothing is actually misogyny. Sure. But if you want to pin that on a person, yes. you blame it on that Florentine jerk. Yeah, exactly. Right. Please know that that is actually in my notes for this episode <laughs> to good. bring up because I feel very strongly about Claudio. He is my a terrible is person. Sure. He <laughs> is a villain that gets a happy ending and he does not deserve it. Not even the way that like Wickham gets the happy ending and you're like okay no but like this yeah, is like a genuinely like, happy ending and I'm I, sorry <laughs> I, Hero, you deserve the world and so much better than that man so the age of five was actually a really important time because I'm pretty sure that's when the Phantom Menace came out for me I'm sorry if I just made you feel old yeah um that's also when my mom was just like Shakespeare is important you can watch it so I actually watched Much Ado About Nothing mm-hmm. and Othello at the pretty much in the same time that was a wild like (laughs) five was once again my villain origin story Mm -hmm. like i i need to talk to my mom about this actually (laughs) so i just remember even as a child watching it and i was just like mama wait a minute i was like so after all he did to that poor girl He's getting away with it. Because he's, he's getting Robert away Sean with Leonard? it. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. I was like, who wrote this? Mm-hmm. I loved it, but why? Yeah. And I did because I love Shakespeare. And then part of me was also very confused about the choice of uh, <laughs> Benedict over Don Pedro because that Don movie. Don Pedro is played by Denzel. Yeah, that's him at his most beautiful, in my opinion. It so is. I was, I was like, I get it, but also. <laughs> Emma Thompson, we need to talk Absolutely. about your choices. But anyway, that that was a time for me is what I'm trying to say. And once again, yes, Claudia is the villain of that story. And it is, his- it's whatever I see. I've seen Much Ado About Nothing live, basically every opportunity I get because right. it is not just my favorite Shakespeare. It is my favorite play. And it's always when Beatrice has that very famous line you know Benedict says come bid me do anything for thee and she says kill Claudio yes. who is his, at this point Benedict's best friend yes. Um, there's often a bit of laughter from the audience and sometimes it's it's they're they're laughing because of how the line was delivered and mm-hmm. sometimes it's this like nervous like <laughs> what because like, I fully read her as being completely oh, serious she is when completely she says serious that. because when Benedict is like not for the wide world I mean she's literally like well then everything you just said about loving me means nothing right let me go literally let go of me and honestly i could not be mad at her because claudio essentially killed her cousin it's right at that point so (laughs) listen we were not (laughs) we could go on about this play i do feel that it is important to note that benedict reverses course and is like ah you're right he did basically kill your cousin guess who's out to murder their best friend and that's love (laughs) 
right? It is. And once again, completely justified. <laughs> it's John Mulaney saying, do you want me to kill that guy for you? Because it sounds like he sucks that I would totally kill that guy for you. <laughs> right? William Shakespeare, 16th century. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I like just kind of wrote like just villains down on a list. Because That's okay. I've got uh, Shakespearean villains that I am fascinated by. Oh, yes. Please do tell. Uh, Richard the Third. Hey. So that's that's you a situation. The history. Situ- What's that? You would bring up the history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not. I mean, I'm not big on on Caesar, but but Richard the Third because he's got all these killer monologues, mm-hmm. and for the first two acts, you're like, okay, well, let me hear this guy out, and then by the fourth act, you're like, when is this guy gonna die? <laughs> so. And it's a very satisfying because he gets this whole parade of ghosts. Exactly. And I think that Richard III brings up so many interesting points about sort of like villainy and disability. Right. Because this is something that I've been seeing a lot of discussion of mm-hmm. recently of like, God, could we stop making all of our villains right. physically disabled or right. in some way or, you know, socially disabled by their physical state in some way because gross. You know, right. disabled people right. are not always like, yes, that doesn't make you monstrous. And that it's that justification. Thus, he has resentment. It, thus, exactly. he hates the world. And exactly. And also, but, Victor Hugo told us not to do this right. centuries true. ago. Right. He told us not to do this. Mm-hmm. Everyone is terrible except for Quasimodo, yes. which is an evil mm-hmm. name to give. Phoebus is a jerk. The worst. Yeah. Frollo. We know what his problem is. Best villain song in Disney canon, though. Okay, but also that movie is it's not, not a children's movie. No, that movie is not a children's. It is movie. not. They it's, tried you know, to make it that with the gargoyles, and it failed. Listen, you can't just cure things with humor. <laughs> Although my one, this is uh, this is my obnoxious pedantry that is like the name Quasimodo in the novel. Frollo gives because he found the child on Quasimodo Sunday, which I want to say is two Sundays after Easter. Right. And I forget why Quasimodo Sunday is called that, but it's not just because he looked at the kid and went like, ah, uh-huh. uh-huh. half formed. formed. Sure. But sure, Disney, take that and run with it. That's sure. not problematic. You guys don't do things like that. Anyway, <laughs> this is not the time for that rant. But yes, we were, we have been told this in these stories, like, no, this is not how we need to do this and yet people still will kind of rely on that Mm -hmm. as their go-to and now we're also kind of seeing that happen with like invisible disabilities like ptsd for Mm -hmm. example right don't get me started on that particular rant but it's in in a way it's kind of i know that romanticization is not the word for this but it still kind of is in its own way of these things where it's just like oh, we need to show that this person is evil Mm -hmm. and we need to have there be this sort of underlying thing that will symbolize how evil they are. And it's just like, or, or they can just be evil. Sure. And I think Richard III brings up, like we're talking about the seductive quality of Mm -hmm. villains because you get that fantastic scene with him and Anne Neville Mm -hmm. where she goes from like, absolutely no i will not marry you to mm-hmm. well i guess i'll marry you i'm under duress to like am i in love with you to i've gone insane right <laughs> like right delicious <laughs> and I, I i shakespeare gives us so many good villains and something that in in preparation for this episode we brought up is macbeth mm-hmm. is which is having a moment right now because denzel again i still need to watch it um it was so fascinating. And I think that you, Jeff, said, who is the villain of Macbeth? There is a right answer. And I said, well, I, I think the villain is like him. Right. Um, and, and you would have some people say, no, no, it's Lady Macbeth. No. Which I love. I love her so much. Well, I will that, defend that's her in her about... bloodstained hands until the day I die. Yeah. <laughs> like, there... does she girl boss too close to the sun? Yes. Does she girl boss too close but to the sun? But she has a whole speech that's like, oh no, I've girl bossed too close to the sun. But if you see certain film adaptations, that is their easy route. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... There was um, Alicia Vikander was in one with Michael Fassbender about five years ago. Oh, I hope I'm getting that right. I thought that was Marion Cotillard. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And then there is Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. If you watch both of those films, you will say Lady Macbeth is the villain. The, the positive I would say about Cohen the Cohen film mm-hmm. is that you 
That was the first adaptation I saw where I was like, oh, it is Macbeth. Yeah, yeah. Patrick Stewart one is also exceptional yeah. because so that one was on great performances. Um, and it's set in, I mean, like Scotland, quote right. unquote, but it's like Stalinist Russia. Right. And while Lady Macbeth definitely does have that sort of, I think, like Russian ice queen stereotype about mm-hmm. her, it's very much like Macbeth is the one whose face is on everything. Right. He's the one who it's his totalitarian regime. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and it's just highly, highly recommend that version. Cause like Patrick Stewart guys, but in story analysis or in film analysis, she lady Macbeth became a trope almost right. akin to Ahab. If, if you're, if you're an obsessed jerk, you're probably an Ahab. Or if you are whispering, usually in a man's ear about, ambition and you're conniving then you're a lady Macbeth. and the, the interesting thing is that like we're so quick to blame her and it's like i mean Macbeth went from like no murder to yes murder very quickly yeah no it he didn't was take much she sort of just had to like flick him once and he right. fell over like a domino exactly he was <laughs> he would have gotten there eventually no he definitely would have gotten there eventually i mean it from the minute he has the mysterious encounter in the woods, he then becomes the villain. Well, the the thing that was driven home by the latest film adaptation is early on when he is essentially passed over for a, a big job promotion. He's back. Denzel plays that and is uh, perhaps in the script and it's directed that way as like he's, he doesn't take it in stride. Mm-hmm. He's pissed. Yeah, right. As he should be. And I, I or, think or, it's... Maybe, I don't know. No. I think it's the naming of, of Malcolm as the heir because the yeah. kingship wasn't hereditary at that right, point. Right. And mm-hmm. it makes more sense mm-hmm. to name this very, like, he's just done so much good military service that he's stopped a coup, mm-hmm. like, single-handedly. Mm-hmm. And the king is still like, Macbeth who? You may have the thaneship of the guy you killed. Exactly. And, I mean, how often is being passed over for promotion going to be a villain origin it's story? It's a trope. It's a trope. Um, but... Yeah, no, that that is kind of my thing with Macbeth. I mean, until we get the tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow speech, which everyone loves, I'm just like, that is his be prepared. Yeah. That yeah. is his, that's his grand song moment. I'm just using Disney just to make it, you well, know, referenceable. I mean, but that of is... Of course, The Lion King is Hamlet with large caps. Listen. So there's sure. nothing wrong with that. Exactly. And it's just... I know that it's so easy to read the assertive character, but Lady Macbeth is just being a supportive wife. And here's the thing is that, like, I definitely don't want to be like, Lady Macbeth did nothing wrong because, like, let evil people be kind of evil. Right. Like, oh, she definitely grew up lost too close to the sun. No, like, definitely. She very much was like, oh, we should kill that guy. And I will, you know, go put the bloody daggers back myself because I have to do everything myself around here. Right. Somebody doesn't have nerves of steel. And I, I just... I can't look away. I think that that is, for me, one of the defining sort of, like, intrigues of a good villain mm-hmm. is that you're like, oh, it's so bad, but I can't look away. I'm, right. I'm invested. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, deeply invested. And there's there's sort of whether they win slash nothing bad happens to them, like Wickham, mm-hmm. or whether, like, they get tossed off of Pride Rock. Right. Or, you know... <laughs> If we're talking about another Patrick Stewart role as like actual Claudius and actual Hamlet, right? Mm-hmm. Drink a cup of poison, like this is sad. It's narratively right. there's this like ah. I feel like I feel like the inclination is to try to make villains too sympathetic not everyone or needs too a relatable arc. yes well, we're gonna get into or, that i just okay. have one thing to share before because oh, i sorry. really want to get into redemption yeah. right but i just wanted to give a shout out to how we see often female characters handling crisis management a lot better than male characters now um not, not that i'm on the side of murder in macbeth but <laughs> you do see a lot of sequences where lady macbeth is like come on get get your shit together here yeah. you are kind of and he's kind of like kind of turns into like a little panicky little baby but um what does it say about our heroes i know i'm diverting from literature here though but you know um simba runs away but his mom and nala stay mm-hmm. like they 
they have to stay and deal with this shit. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I'm swearing more on the podcast than we should be. It's a library podcast. (laughs) However, but it's appropriate for the villain podcast. And then if you look into, you know, not that we love the sequel trilogy, but, you know, Luke runs away and Leia stays. And it's just it's just fascinating to me that we often see these male characters have little fits and they run away. I mean, historically, women just can't run away. That's also true. I guess we're stuck here. And and I I mean, thinking back to much to do about nothing, even though the person who is sort of like, could you calm down is a priest is a man, the the people going, you can't gloss this over. You can't ignore this. Like it has socially killed her. We might as well give out that it has literally killed her. That's that's women. And the fact that. Benedict is like a romantic hero for the ages and Claudio is a little bastard. Sure. Is that <laughs> is that when Beatrice says, you know, I know that my cousin is telling the truth. I know it more than I know my own existence, than I know that I have a soul. Right. And right. Benedict is like he switches his allegiances to women. Sure. And that's like why we get a happy ending. Sure. Right. Oh man. You know. And I and I wanted to jump back into um Don Giovanni and a few other points that we've done here is this impulse that we is it is it like especially with Don Giovanni he gets the ultimate punishment this idea of punishment <laughs> that villains deserve punishment that that this gets into you know moralistic proselytizing what's wrong that they deserve punishment because they're bad keeping it so mm-hmm. reductive like that mm-hmm. um, and then that brought up one of my favorite scenes from the 1987 film Princess Bride. Yes. <gasps> Listen. Where <laughs> where little Fred Savage is is just dumbfounded that the villain doesn't get punishment per se. Mhm. Um so this idea of a villain needs to literally go to hell. Yeah. Because of morals. Um, or die because or, of right, morals right. which which Wesley rejects. Yeah, right. I don't I don't necessarily need my villains to be punished in the traditional sense. Um, And once again, I'm sorry, we just finished with this, but I have to go back to Iago with this because my, the reason, basically the crux of my paper Mm -hmm. was why he decides to not talk at the end of the play, because he has done everything. Right. Othello's dead. His wife is dead. Right. Both Both of their their wives wives are dead. (laughs) Because I was about to specify one of the wives. Like, sure, the guy who, you know, he got passed over for the promotion for is still there. But there's also Desdemona's father is dead. There is just Cassio in charge of everything. The man's been useless the whole play. Exactly. There's just nothing but destruction in his wake. And we end the play with him basically saying, Yeah, I'm just I'm done talking. Yeah, he he and We know that, you know, okay, he's going to go to trial. He's probably going to be put to death. Like, we know that. But he still but wins. he is the one who says, I'm going to silence myself. Right. That is such a power move. Right. That is such a moment that it's almost unsatisfactory if you're, like, waiting for him to be punished. Because it's just not going to happen in the way that you think. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that. Narratively, um, it's much more interesting it is so than intriguing. someone coming back on stage holding his head. And sure. so with The Princess Bride, when I watched it as a child, and, you know, Prince Humperdinck is just left tied up sure. <laughs> to a chair in the bedroom, and, you know, I was just like, oh, you know what? Whatever. Because yeah. I know he's not going to come after Wesley and anymore at this point. And I also a sense of the punishment fitting the, the crime, as right. it were. I'm so glad you brought up Princess Bride, because... Humperdinck, like, you go through the film and he's just kind of a drip. Right. And he has other people doing his dirty work for right. him. But right. But the Count, the six-fingered man. Tyrone is his name. Yes. I just want to note that. Thank you. And, <laughs> you know, you've you've heard of all these horror. I mean, he kills Inigo Montoya's father in front of him when he's a child. Yes. Right. And, you know, scar- literally scars him as a child. And for, I mean... Best revenge scene of all time. Nice. Best revenge so plot. Great. Best death scene of of Inigo doing this final duel. And see, that's a that's a situation where I'm like, 
no, that guy does need to die. No, and I'm because, glad you brought that up. Because not, not even so much because he needs to die per se, mm-hmm. but right. because Inigo needs to kill him. Exactly. And I'm so glad you said that because in contrast, while I didn't really hear about Humperdinck, I was very invested Absolutely. in what was going to happen to the six-fingered man. So by the time, because they those scenes are basically one after the other, once he was dead, I was like, okay, this story is over. Like what happens, There's something happens. to that. There's yes. something to that. And I was just like, okay my satisfaction in terms of how this story has ended is found like i'm good and ego is alive he's gotten his revenge like he's going to get his father's sword well, back yeah. like there's a there's a nice book ended sequence and i should say having read the book the film is pretty uh devoted to mm-hmm. to to the to the book yes um except for one thing which i'll bring up in just a second Ooh. but when wesley and Inigo first duel before they duel Inigo has a monologue and he tells him the story about his father mm-hmm. and he says I've been in the revenge business for so long I'm, I'm starting I'm starting to like he's starting to kind of unravel maybe a little bit right mm-hmm. after he does kill Tyrone they have another moment in the window before they jump down and he says I almost don't know what I can do with myself now I, I feel like I have he, he doesn't he has like a confused sense of closure. What, mm-hmm. what does he even do now? And Wesley, like a good pal, helps him out and gives him direction. But you feel like he can grow now. Yes. Yes. He can grow. And I think that's so, again, much more narratively satisfying right. than like, I didn't, and I feel great. It's right. like, this has been the mission of my life since I was like eight years old. Right. I'm now a grown man. Right. What do I do with that? Mm-hmm. The only thing I was going to say is that the one difference between the, the book and the movie is that uh, in the film... Humperdinck is played by Chris Sarandon, a very handsome man with a beautiful voice, uh, voice of Jack Skellington, by the way. Um, but in the book, he is frumpier. He's a little sillier. He's a little, I think he's like balding. He's a little chubby. He's not exactly, he's he's not exactly dashing. So mm. whatever. I oh, mean, so Chris, the name makes sense. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Chris Sarandon's Chris very easy on the eyes, but um, the book is, uh, the movie's pretty dedicated to the book, so. And those are my thoughts. There are some movies and some things that I feel like are entirely like their crux is on the villain entirely. So this book is very popular and I loved it, to be clear. But The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, the reason I love that book was the villain. And he is a villain. Mm -hmm. He hits all of like the seductive. He's like unredemptive like he hits all of those points and while i'm like this is a great story i'm like this story i am reading mm-hmm. to get to the next time that he shows up right. and then another i guess in like popular culture and i'm only going to mention the first one even though we can talk about the others is pirates of the caribbean yes the real villain of Pirates of the Caribbean is the announcer who had everybody saying Caribbean for years. Uh, agreed, because technically the Spanish pronunciation is Caribe. You should be pronoun- putting that like Caribbean. Uh, Caribbean. I hated it. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it drove me nuts. Right. But Hector Barbosa in the first movies, that monologue where Elizabeth Swan is like they move from the captain's quarters to the deck of the ship and it just gets like, it's it's so well performed. It's so well performed. It's like so Jeffrey good. Rush is putting his everything into, into that. Into that and moment. You watch that film and you're like, this was supposed to be a silly Disney adventure action movie. Mm-hmm. And instead it serves like fairy tale horror. I mean, just yes. the line of you'd best start believing in, yeah. in nightmares or in, in something. Yeah. You know, Miss, Miss Swan, you're in one. Yeah. And yeah. it's just like he talks about how he can eat, but he can't taste. He can drink, but he's still thirsty. And it's just I like eat a whole bushel of apples. Exactly. I'm like, oh, my goodness. That entire movie is made by both that scene and then the scene of them walking under the ship because those yes. special oh, effects absolutely. were amazing. But like I don't care about anything else in that movie other than the moments with Hector Barbosa because he's such a fantastically written villain character. I, and I, I do I do care about the scene where Elizabeth is bandaging Will's hands or maybe it's vice versa. That invented romance and that's just all I'll say about that. All right. All right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but I didn't I totally forgot that was the scene because once again I'm just like 
when, when's Barbosa coming back? Right. Like, there's a betrayal plot. There's there's just so much that we get in that movie. And and he does just get to be he mutinied Jack on an island, probably because he felt like it. Right. And probably because Jack, Jack deserved it. Also that too. <laughs> and and it's the the whole redemption arc question is so interesting to me because I think most of what gets touted as like a redemption arc, mm. there is no actual redemption involved yeah. because there's no atonement. There's no restitution. There's no like radical, painful inner transformation of self that mm-hmm. like extends to right. reparation for past wrongs, which frankly, I'm only rarely interested in in narrative because most of the kind of villains you get, it would be, you would have to, you'd have to have a book the size of Les Miserables mm-hmm. to convincingly have enough character development to get them to that point. Mm-hmm. And I don't want something to be hand-waved. Right. And I personally think it's kind of fun to, you know, I've actually never seen Don Giovanni, but another thing that's very, that's a, a similar pattern is Faust. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. And there's a fantastic film version from Shakespeare's Globe that's just Chef's Kiss, Arthur Darvill's Mephistopheles. It's fantastic. Um, and... You sort of Faust sort of gets two villains sure. because mm-hmm. he's a Faustus himself is a villainous sort of right. person. He takes advantage of a lot of people. He sells his soul to get all of these things to just achieve his own ends. And then you also have Mephistopheles who's like, "Sell me your soul, please." Right. Um, and and yeah, and it ends with Faustus being damned and being like surprised about it. And Mephistopheles is like, "So." I have the school you signed in blood. I really don't know where this is coming from, which to me is just extremely funny. Um, but it's <laughs> on the one hand, you you feel a little, you've just spent like two and a half hours with this guy. So mm-hmm. you feel a little sorry that he's going to hell, but also you just watched him do it. Right. And so that's the, that's the, the logical conclusion of the narrative. And I think so much of the attraction of villains is exactly like the narrative role that they play. And right. when you are, you know, it can make a sort of not that interesting hero much more interesting. Right. Um, and I think that so often, like, the question of the redemption arc undermines the whole narrative or just right. throws the pacing off or just does. does something that makes you go, what? Yeah. And that's why I don't, just really quick, Faust and the Little Mermaid instilled in me as a child the importance of reading contracts and contract law. Oh, yeah. Because yes. Ursula was not wrong. Yes. Okay, sorry. She, just there's a whole song <laughs> where she tells that mermaid every single like right. here is what's going to happen. Right. Like and I'm Ariel sorry you like, signed okay. a 360 deal, Ariel, but you should have read the contract. <laughs> sorry, that's amusing. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry, but I totally forgot where I was going. <laughs> but yeah, no, redemptions. actually, redemptions. Yep. And we're just, I know I keep veering us back into Disney, but this is something that I want to talk about because well, it's Disney driving me crazy. Disney is the culprit. Disney yes. always has villains. Okay. That yes. is the point. Well, so they, hold on. I think that which, they stopped. they moved away from. They moved away from. With Encanto. We're going to talk about this later. I'm not going to do this on the well, podcast. Or to a degree, <laughs> and not that I want to give it more credit because it's already won so much credit, but like Toy Story is really that, oh, that shift where there's really a, because when I was a child out. when I was a child, I was just like Woody is right. <laughs> so same, same, <laughs> okay. same, but, but but it was a little more complex. <laughs> okay. But yeah. But anyway, uh uh Encanto. So well we, no, I'm not gonna veer into that be, on the podcast. And we know, because and we know why, because the, we, we can't talk about Bruno. All right. Anyway. Oh, Jeff. Why? <laughs> so I, I feel like I have to take this moment to say that I still haven't seen it. It's fine. I still haven't like listened to the to the music, even though I'm sure mm. it's good because I'm not prepared for that earworm. Sure. <laughs> Maybe sure. when we go to Literati, I will like trap you in my house and make you watch it with me. <laughs> That'll be it. But what I was going to say is that Disney is doing this thing that I hate. And I've touched on it briefly already this episode where they are doing these live actions where they are trying to redeem their villains. Oh. And it's driving me up the wall. Let me tell you, Maleficent. Really cool concept. I actually quite enjoyed that. But then they kept doing Doing it it. Mm -hmm. over and over again. The only other time that they didn't do it, in my opinion, other than, I guess, Beauty and the Beast, but I don't talk about that movie for a lot of reasons. was the thing. I saw that movie in theaters three times. And even now I look back at myself and I go, what was happening there? And yet, (laughs) I'm not ashamed. Please continue. You know, I almost, uh, I almost brought up Gaston, but we could go. <laughs> we'll come back to Gaston. We'll come back to Gaston. Is 
Cinderella. I actually really, really enjoyed their live action version of it mm-hmm. because they gave the stepmother more depth as a villain without redeeming her character. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, thank you. So you can do it. But Kenneth Branagh was involved in that. So that's probably why that happened that way. Right. Love him. Thank right. you for what you did. But they keep doing it with all these other stories. And mm-hmm. I do not like it because you are degrading your villains and thereby degrading your vi- and protagonists. Mm-hmm. And then the story just falls apart. Right. Everything is getting weakened because your story, when it comes to these good versus evil battles that you are setting up for children, right. because they can only be so complex, you are setting yourself up for failure the minute you're just like, but what if they weren't that bad? Well, if the villain doesn't have redemption, there's a sense that we don't have closure it has this sometimes it has a sense of tragedy i could see that there's an there is a a sense of closure when gaston fell oh listen right i was so fine with that as a child i was like i don't need him to be a better person it actually is interesting though the instance of disney villains meeting their ends by falling usually not being pushed either but by falling because that's an abdication of moral responsibility on the part of the protagonist rocks fall and everyone dies exactly but here's the thing because Gaston is a villain, uh-huh. but I'm going to just toss something out there. Beast is a villain. Yeah, and yeah, the totally. redemption arc that we are getting is not Gaston's. It's Beast. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so I don't need Gaston to be. I get my redemption arc. Sure. And I get it with the character who needs to have it. Sure. Gaston doesn't need to have it at all. Just let him die. Sure. <laughs> and what I think is Gaston intrigues me for the same reason George Wickham intrigues me, which is that like I personally know him, like I have met him in my real life. Yeah, when you brought right. up when you brought up Wickham, I, I was literally like, going to bring Gaston up that yeah, early. Right. Yeah. Um. And so Gaston like checks all of the boxes as being like extremely realistic. I want to throw my popcorn at the screen. Right. He gets a great catchy song. Right. He dies. Right. Like. <laughs> That's, just, that's all of my Disney villain boxes it's there. such a good formula. We don't need to. <laughs> it's so good. It works every time. I just want to say, before we run, to- totally run out of time, I blame the redemption arc obsession on the OG Darth Vader. That's what it okay. always oh, I was about. wondering when he was going to, because I, I once saw someone on the internet claim, and I, I do not think this is incorrect, that if the original trilogy had been released today like mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. as is and the yeah. prequels had never existed and that kind of thing that people would be so thirsty over darth vader Absolutely. because you've never okay. seen his face this is he 100%. sounds like james earl jones this is a family podcast but his name is literally darth daddy yeah exactly Just right. t- tossing that out there. exactly That's and, <laughs> and so like that twist wasn't a surprise to all the people who saw the german dub right. um but 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 then like in the third film, you see him without his helmet, and you're like, oh, that man is actively dying. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, but also Phantom of the Opera, same. Okay. They do that with him, too. I'm sorry. I'm, you, I also you should kind have of can't this believe job. that it took us this long to get to Phantom, which I think is another excellent villain versus antagonist question. Right. And also, he's a terrible person. Oh, he's the worst. I need people to understand this. The Phantom of the Opera <laughs> is a murderer and a manipulator. And he gaslights Christine by making her think he is the ghost of her father. And I would even argue that there is no cool motive. No, like, I am sorry, sir, no cool that motive. you were treated like that. But it is not a cool motive and it is definitely still Also, murder. in the book, he's horrifying. He has a death's head. Also, for some reason, the hero of that story, who's supposed to be Raoul, sucks in the <laughs> musical. Like, I'll watch it and I'm just like... The problem with I don't, the musical... Which I'm I've, not moved by which you. Which I have loved since I was 13 years old. I've been the listening problem, to the soundtrack so much. Oh, the problem with the musical, with both Raul and Christine, is that you have to put, so much of it relies on the actors mm-hmm. right, to put themselves into it. And I've mm-hmm. seen very good actors do Phantom, and it's right. very satisfying. But it's not like... So when they wrote Gypsy for Ethel Merman, they were worried that she wasn't going to be able to act it. So they were like, we have to make this role so good that even a woman with not very many acting chops can knock it out of the park. Now, I think Ethel Merman also, I think they underestimated her. But like, Mama Rose from Gypsy, those roles are not. Right. So you have to put a lot of yourself in them. And they can come across as very bland, which is not fair because... The novel, I think, is excellent. Right. And yes. And yeah. he's so much more. Raul is so much more compelling in the novel. Yeah, he is. But yeah, the musical, 
Anyway, sorry, just had to toss that out there really quick but, while we were talking about, about Darth Vader. When you think about like villain, like people who are intrigued by villains, the the intriguing nature of villains, mm-hmm. I really do think that the Phantom of the Opera, like the Phantom especially, is like up there. Oh, yeah. he checks in the pinnacle. Of, listen, of, like, I have to say that he's a villain because I feel like no one but me sometimes understands that he's a villain because the things you. that I love him for are the things that people like to romanticize him for. And I have no. to go, friend, no. No. Want better for yourself. It's that redemption thing, though, because when I saw the musical, I interpreted it the same way that I'm supposed to interpret something like Casablanca. He's like, oh, well, he let her go at the end. What a what a sweetheart. He let her go be with her, her actual true love. I guess he's a okay guy. Yeah, he didn't hang him after all. I guess right. this is fine. Right. <laughs> he, he didn't trap you into this weird non-official marriage <laughs> so, under the opera also, house. He's, right. he's so emo in the musical. Oh my god. So <laughs> I love emo. it though. It's amazing. <laughs> music of the night is a beautiful it is. creepy song. It oh, is. Yeah. It is. Well, it I is. mean speaking of Don Giovanni, the man writes the self-insert John Giovanni opera in which List. it does not end with him going to hell. Right. And then performs it on stage, just hijacks the performance. Listen, I love him. He's so dramatic. Right. Like love him right terrible person please want better for yourself but personally the quick and dirty thing of and they they repeat it again with ben solo spoiler alert is this was a bad person darth vader redemption but then death immediately so clo- case closed happy ending <sighs> he he's bad but he you know he's bad and he died now but oh boy well, did he redemption. i will ignore moved. the space fascism yeah. because he's sure. dead sure. i was so unmoved by kylo ren as a villain like the minute I saw him, I was this bored thing. by so, him. I will confess, I've only seen the first. I've only seen episode seven sure. of the new trilogy, um, and I I went to see it in the theaters because I wanted the big bah, sure. bah and I wanted to see the, the scroll on the sure. screen, and mm-hmm. it was totally worth it. And I came out going, okay, so that was like a new hope again, right. and that's fine. Right. Um, it was a new hope with like they wasted a cool lightsaber women and yes. and people of color, so like that was a nice version sure. of a new hope that I just saw. And I also remember thinking like. The new guy is not as compelling no. as Darth Vader was. And then as I like heard reviews of the next two movies, I was like, oh, you mean they didn't roundly condemn it's the space fascism? Because here's the thing. And this is something that I will give the prequel co- uh, trilogy and as well as the original trilogy credit for. Uh-huh. You have Darth Vader, uh-huh. but you also have Grievous. Right. You also have, uh, why am I forgetting Christopher Lee's character's name right now? Uh, Dooku. Yeah, Dooku. Great character. You have um, Boba Fett, who's not a protagonist. Sure. In you know the original series, like you have, you have your big bad, but you have these little bads that make things bad along the way. I don't know why I just <laughs> read the word bad so much, and I feel like that was lacking. Yeah. And so when you put everything on the crux of your big bad, and your big bad is as flat as mm-hmm. Kylo Ren was, it just, I, I did not get my. Darth Maul, you know, lightsaber flashing in my eyes as I was a child and me feeling, you know, awed by him. I was just like, this sucks. And and not even, and I I will admit that I'm going now entirely on just sort of what I've heard because I haven't seen the last few films, but but it sounds like they sort of try to do like romance question mark with Rey. And and the thing is, a, a deliciously like Lady Gaga bad romance, like villain protagonist, but can be exquisite. Sure. I like the first sort of half of Shadow and Bone sort of has that dynamic. And while there's one thing that I very definitely like want to happen in canon, there's a lot of alternatives in fan fiction yeah. that are fascinating. And it doesn't sound like the new no. Star Wars trilogy pulled that off. So I love a romantic subplot, but only if it makes sense yes. and only if it works. If sure. you just toss romance into something where it doesn't belong, I will like turn into a, a little gremlin. <laughs> like it makes is, me so angry. This is the thing about romance readers, which you and I both are, is that we we value ourselves and our time and we have taste yes. and we have opinions. And so, you know, people will complain. I feel like, Nobody complains about unnecessary romance in stories or poorly executed romance in stories more than people who love romance. Okay, I know we are so out of time, but yes. I have to add this in here because I promised that I would bring this up. A villain whose cr- the crux of their villainy is romance is Imhotep from The Mummy. 
Oh my gosh, this throw- is the next episode though. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to throw that out there Such just to give you layout. that because that is a case in which you get villainy, several romantic subplots, yeah. and you are just, I'm there for that ride. I can't wait to watch So <laughs> We are getting, it. Uh, that's perfect place to, to, to wrap up. We are going to get into, we are going to get into Emotep because uh, I want one of our next episodes to be librarians in popular media, which we will get into Rachel Weisz's character from the 1999 masterpiece the mummy so thank you both for joining us i feel like we could have another villains episode pretty soon this was very fascinating (laughs) and a wild ride (laughs) a wild ride an odyssey truly an odyssey um i still feel like i have this is the villain of his own story (laughs) not wrong was our chat with mary graham and roddy brown about villains they'll be back soon because we can't just leave emotep on the table (laughs) cut out jeff (laughs) thank you for listening to all of our thoughts on villains uh i think roddy said that she loves villains three times in the episode maybe four uh a lot of great thoughts i'd love to read her paper on iago Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It's a little too quiet. The Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to ferndalefriends.org or just remember to rate, review, subscribe, or leave a comment out there or just tell a friend about it. If you've got somebody out there like Mary Graham, who's a villain neophyte, or like Vil- uh, Roddy over here, who is uh, loves villains, uh, or if you're just a big fan of Darth Maul, pass this episode along on social media. We would appreciate it. Uh, we'll be back next week. With more, thanks for listening. Jonathan Ronald Rolkin Tolkien. It's not his name. <laughs> and the other one is like a real life person. You can't tell me things like that because I was like, oh, that's totally his name. <laughs> I think the second R is like rule or something. I think it's... Jonathan something rule token. Doesn't matter. I'm hoping Ronald. I'm hoping for Ronald.